Welcome to the Ugly Things Podcast. I'm Mike Stacks, the editor and publisher of Ugly Things Magazine. I'm excited about today's episode because we'll be going deep into one of my all-time favorite records, the debut album by Moby Grape. Originally released in June 1967, this West Coast wonder is in regular rotation at my house, especially during the summer months, and it never gets old. There's not a weak song on it. Every one of them is a winner. Moby Grape was a mercurial, multi-headed monster. Five singers, five songwriters, three guitarists. Jerry Miller, Peter Lewis, Skip Spence, and one of the tightest, most dynamic rhythm sections of the era, bass player Bob Mosley and drummer Don Stevenson. In this episode, Don Stevenson talks about how the band first came together in 1966 and about the writing and recording of their debut masterpiece. Also on board for the conversation is Cam Cobb, author of the great Moby Grape biography, What's Big and Purple and Lives in the Ocean, and also an upcoming book about Skip Spence. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm here today with Don Stevenson of Moby Grape and Cam Cobb, who is the biographer of Moby Grape and an expert on the band. So let's talk about how the band first came together, because we're talking about five individuals from different backgrounds, different locations. Um, Don, I know you and Jerry were playing together first in the Frantics up in the Pacific Northwest. Maybe you could pick up the story there. Um, I think just how the the band uh, turned into a to Moby Grape is kind of interesting. This was after we were in California. The Frantics came down from uh, Washington and Tacoma down to California to play on on Broadway. Uh, at the time, that was kind of a prestigious thing to do. The Birds were on Broadway, and after we found out that you know Carol Dota was at the Condor and the Birds had left town and. We were backing up topless dancers. We uh, kind of got out of there as soon as we possibly could. Um, And we got a gig in San Francisco again at the Dragon at Go-Go. And we ended up finding Bob Mosley at a gig where uh, Jerry and I went to listen to Joel Scott Hill Trio. And uh, we heard Bob Mosley and we talked to him and, and, and we hired him to come and play with the Frantics because he was so awesome. He was just amazing. So our saxophone player that was playing with the Frantics at the time, Bob Hosko, went back up to Seattle, and we replaced him uh, with, uh, with Mosley. So we had the Frantics were playing uh, in San Francisco at the Dragon at Gogo, and um, just it was a Chinese restaurant, not on Broadway. And we had a nice gig there, and uh, Bob played with us for, for probably a month or so. And then that gig ran out and Bob left and uh, Jerry and I went back down to San Mateo and that was the last we'd heard of Bob, but it was a great experience playing with him. So there was a period of time there where Jerry and I were just playing around on the peninsula, picking up a gig here and there. We had played with uh, Denise Kaufman, and who was from the Ace of Cups. She ended up uh, with the Ace of Cups and uh, we played with her for a while and she found the club scene relatively, you know, disgusting, but Jerry and I were old, you know, blue collar club guys. And so we played at the clubs. And one day we got a call from uh, San Francisco. Uh, Matthew Cates somehow found our phone number and gave us a call. And I guess Matthew was up in uh, San Francisco with, um, with Skip, uh, who was the drummer with the airplane, Skip Spence. And uh, they were going to start a new band. Skip wanted to get out of the airplane um, or the airplane wanted to get Skip out of it, however <laughs> that worked. But uh, anyway, the Bob Mosley and Peter Lewis had uh, some prior um, 
some prior knowledge of one another. I think uh, Peter knew Matthew, and uh, and then Peter knew Bob and invited him up. So they had three pieces, and they needed a, a, a drummer. And I think that uh, they wanted another guitar player. So uh, they invited us up for an audition to be... A, they were holding auditions up in San Francisco for... Uh, for this new band, because in San Francisco there was an amazing scene happening at the time. You know, music was exploding all over the place. People were coming from all over the world to uh, San Francisco uh, because of the energy and the enthusiasm and the change of culture and something was going on and the music had a big part of it. So Jerry and I drove up to uh, our appointed date for the audition. So we went in, they had a studio set up where they had speakers and drums and amplifiers and mics and all of that. and So we introduced ourselves. We knew Bob, obviously, because Bob was the one that recommended us, but we didn't know Peter, and we didn't know Matthew, and we didn't know Skip. Um, so we all introduced ourselves to each other, and primarily the way uh, the audition went was we just all kind of played songs that we liked, like we were playing songs, Little Richard songs, and you know songs from Chuck Berry and you know, Fats Domino, and, you know, just, uh, we were just playing anything that we liked, and we just started playing, and uh, I don't know, it was like we'd been playing together forever, you know, it was just, it was just awesome, singing was good, and playing was good, and sounded good to me, you know, and I was kind of tying in with Bob, because we'd played together before, you know, we just locked it in, and so the audition was over, we just, we were supposed to play maybe a couple of songs we ended up playing for maybe 45 minutes or an hour just we just because it was fun so jerry and i wanted to be cool so we left the audition and just said hey you know nice to meet you guys and you know we'll see what happens uh you know it was cool we had a lot of fun thanks and we got out in the car we hopped in the oldsmobile and looked at each other and high-fived and you know went oh my god did you hear that and, whoa <laughs> that was so you know, and so uh, we were just thrilled, man. It was like, cool. We didn't want to be that enthusiastic in front of everybody, but we were, Jerry and I are buddies. So uh, we were pretty excited. You know, I said, well, I hope to hell we get that gig. So we went back down to San Mateo and kept playing. And a few days later, we just found out that, uh, hey, let's get together because uh, we, want, uh, we want you and Jerry to be in the band. And that's kind of how it all got together. And, and how soon after that did uh, the name come about? Um, I think we started to perform at the Ark, but we weren't performing to begin with. To begin with, it was just a rehearsal area. Yeah. And so we were down, we we moved down to, from San Mateo, we moved uh, up into Mill Valley. Jerry and I moved up into Mill Valley. And uh, this Ark was the name of the abandoned ferry boat that had turned into a restaurant dance floor um, located in San Francisco, there was a lot of houseboats there, and this uh, this kind of really cool old ferry boat that was, uh, you know, like I said, turned into a restaurant and a music venue. After hours venue is what it amounted to. So after we got there, and this, by the way, while we were there, you know, Janis Joplin with Big Brother and the Holding Company, and uh, the Buffalo Springfield and Lee Michaels and and Moby Grape were all playing there and practicing there and, and working out all of our songs. Uh, nobody had heard of any of us, and we weren't, we weren't even playing for quite some time. We were just rehearsing. And so while we were rehearsing, uh, I, I think Skip came up with the name, or Skip or Bob came up with the name. Uh, it was just uh, out of a, you know, just a chapter from an old joke. You know, the old joke was what's big and purple and swims in the sea. It was... You know, Moby, Moby Grape. Or no, it was Moby, yeah, it was Moby Grape. <laughs> From Moby Dick, which is big and white and swims in the sea. I mean, so it was just like a ridiculous name. But we were throwing around all kinds of names. And uh, and when we came up with that, when we that was brought on, we all just said, well, you know what? It's like kind of ridiculous, but it's something that people remember. It'll, it'll be remembered. It's not, it's unusual. And as I look back, there was kind of two groups of names. There was like, kind of cool names. And then there were names like, you know, the Strawberry Alarm Clock and the Prunes. And I think, I, I'm afraid that Moby Grape might have fallen into the ridiculous name, but we had some vindication because I think everybody that was in it had uh, had some musical chops that uh, could rise above a ridiculous name. But then, of course, Matthew claimed that he thought of it. 
Uh, so what kind of people were coming to the Ark? I mean, what kind of scene was that? Um, well, as I told you, Jerry and I were kind of like grizzled old bar players. You know, we'd play up in Seattle. We'd, you know, you'd play at a bar and you'd play there for six weeks, six nights, a, you know, six nights a week, from nine o'clock to one o'clock in the morning. So we just we were just playing all the time. When we got to the Ark and we finally started to open up, we started to play after hours. I was actually shocked because uh, I'm, you know, I I had never really seen people like I look out there and you know it looked like I was playing for a bunch of water buffaloes these people had like hair that came out over everywhere <laughs> big beards and you know <laughs> girls with big long big hair and you know it was just like the, a scene that it was for me it was like out of the Star Wars bar at the time I, I just was it was really unusual but the people were so cool and they loved to dance and they loved uh, they loved the after hours show and then after I you know, got initiated a little bit more into the scene through uh, smoking some really nice bud and you know, relaxing a little bit. Uh, I just embraced the whole thing. It was really great. But uh, it was an unusual scene because our scene was like after the Avalon, the Fillmore closed and Matrix closed and people would come over to Sausalito and we would start, you know, at one o'clock in the morning or, and play till four or five o'clock in the morning over there. And then then they'd serve breakfast at the Ark, and so it was a um, it was a pretty cool scene. Well, that sounds like it. But at what point did original material start getting into the set? Was that pretty quick? Do you remember what the first songs were? There was never anything but original material. So right away, when you guys got together, you, you're all writing. Yeah, we were rehearsing before we rehearsed at the Ark, and actually kind of started the you know after hours. We we practiced up at Skip's house up in Marin, and uh, at that point. You know, we would practice every day. We'd come in and every day somebody would have a new song. You'd come in and say, hey, listen to this, man. And, uh, you know, Bob would come in and lay something down or Peter or Skip or Jerry and I. And uh, and uh, the cooperative sense of, uh, I guess maybe it was just like what was going on in, you know, in the air. Okay, so in this band, you got five singers, five songwriters, three guitarists, uh and uh, you're all throwing in ideas. Maybe let's talk about the three guitarists. You've got three different styles of playing there with uh, Peter and Jerry and Skip. Um, how would you define each of those styles, and how did they work together? Was there any difficulties? So are you, are you a musician at all? Do you play? Yeah, I do. Okay, Michael, you appreciate this. We had, what, 20, 24 strings, and there was no tuning devices. <laughs> so, so the first challenge was <laughs> you had one of these old tuners, metal tuners, you'd bang on your knee and put on the body of the guitar. Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it was like, it was a miracle. But uh, we did manage to tune up and to be patient enough to where everybody was happy with the, with the tuning. But Peter came from a finger-picking style and kind of from a folk background, right? Right. But he was a pretty accomplished finger picker. So that was a unique style. And Jerry, uh, just as a solo virtuoso, I mean, and when we were up in Seattle and kind of our basics, we were playing, you know, charts from old standards and, you know, jazz charts. And he was like a big West Montgomery fan. And so he was like on the edge of rhythm and blues and jazz. And uh, Skip was just ethereal. Um, so he would just move in and out without, uh, without a trace of, of conflict. So it was very unusual. So Skip just found space in the midst of everything else, and Peter picked fingers, picked, did finger picking, and Jerry would, would play uh, you know, chords and play these great licks. And then Mosley was obviously just, uh, just like, we used to call him thumping grump, and that guy could like just lay down the bass. I think that's the reason it worked because nobody, I don't think there was any bands at that time that had three guitars and then all of us sang and all of us wrote. So that became a, a strength. And again, that's one of the things that created that excitement when we were rehearsing because you'd come in and you'd bring a song and you'd sing. And the next thing you know, there's people singing harmonies and then 
somebody say, why don't we do this? And, you know, Mosley would go, you know, where's that old Mr. <laughs> Blues? And they'd go, boop, boop, boo. You know, and the next thing you know, we're like the four tops. And then so, you know, so there was just, uh, you know, people are singing harmony lines and why don't we do this? And so the ability to be able to all play and all sing and all write just created this huge enthusiasm. So we were possessed with uh, this musical spirit that um, was just waiting to get, to get out. Right, yeah. I mean, you could tell when you listen to that first album especially, you know, it, just the way you guys are sparking off each other is just extraordinary. So let's talk next about how the deal came about with Columbia Records. Cam, maybe you can uh, talk about this, uh, how the deal went down. Sure. Um in January of 67, David Rubinson mentioned in an interview that he was going to scout the Sparrow. And um, he was a A&R and producer with Columbia Records. And he was there watching the Sparrow. And Moby Grape were on the bill. They were sharing the bill. So this was in um, mid-January of 67. And you got interest now um, from Columbia. There was interest from Atlantic and also interest from Electra. There it really came down to those three labels and there was a bidding war for, for the band. And a part of their decision was they were big fans of the birds and the birds were on Columbia and the birds partly signed on because Dylan was on Columbia and also Rubinson's personal excitement. So they had someone who was in house, who was like their advocate excited about them. And they went down to LA to record some demos with Columbia in um, January of 67. They recorded Looper and Indifference on the 25th of January. And then a few, about a week later, well, a, a couple weeks later, they recorded a, a Peter song, another demo called Stop uh, with Columbia. And so that, that was down to LA for that. And then they signed with Columbia uh, in February of 67. And they got down to business to recording very quickly after that, they had a huge repertoire of songs that they had written and arranged together. And it was, it was just a handful of days in March and April that they recorded that first album. Right. Okay, so Don, let's, you know, take us there, you know, set the scene. Columbia Studios in uh, Hollywood, right? This is where uh, the first album's going down and you've, you're playing the material that you'd worked up at the Ark and everything. Um, and at venues up in the Bay Area, um, you know, what was the atmosphere like? Uh, you know, was it was it easy to capture that live spirit in the studio? Well, I think the kind of it started um, at the Palms Motel when we first got down to Hollywood, and we all had our little cabins there, and we were going to go do a recording with uh, Columbia, and David wanted to pick out the song, so he came over, and it, again, I didn't even realize in a way. You know, it's how I don't want to say how good we were, but I didn't realize in a way what uh, you know what this was going to sound like until David came over and we all just sat down and we completely played unplugged and we sang the whole album for David. And so we went into the when we went into the studio, David was so enthusiastic. He had he felt he knew exactly which songs he wanted to record, which ones, which order they should be in. And so when we went into the studio. Um, we were prepared, and uh, having been prepared, I think one of the, the good things is is that, you know, it was like we'd take, a lot of these things were done on one take. We'd just go in and lay down the track, then come out and lay down the vocals. And so it didn't take very long to create that first album in relationship to, in relation to what a lot of albums from a lot of artists take. I think, I don't know, I'd have to ask Cam, how many days were... Were I think it was five days. Yeah, five days. Because we were like, we would go go in the studio and record a couple of songs, and we'd go off and play a gig for a couple of days, and we'd come back down to the studio and record a couple more songs, and we'd go play another gig and come back and record some more songs. But it was, uh, it, it never lost any of the momentum or the feel, so it was uh, real fresh. Right. Right. So you would do all the music live and would you do a scratch vocal and then do a live, uh, you know, a, a proper overdub vocal? No, we just go out and sing and we do the background vocals and the lead vocals all at the same time. 
but having done the backing tracks first, or, or was it the whole thing live? We do the we do the instrumental first. Right. Okay. But yeah, with no scratch vocal. Yeah, we're one step removed from Little Richard, which I think is like even the better sound. Was where they would just put mics into the studio. They'd go one, two, three, four. Everybody would play, and they would sing all at the same time. But this was only maybe one step removed from that. You know, if you take a look at where they've come come from then until now, where the last album I did with uh, some of the Mellencamp guys and with Jerry and with, you know, people in Tennessee, we never were in the same room. Yeah. You know? So this was really, the, well, the reason it has that fresh sound is because it was just, it was fresh, you know, limited takes and a lot of preparation and ready to go. Right. Well, let's, Let's go through the album track by track, and maybe you can tell me a little bit about, you know, give me your thoughts on uh, each of these songs, and Cam feel free to chime in. So the first song on the album is Hey Grandma, that's one that you wrote, Don, with Jerry. What do you remember about writing and recording that song? Well, again, like I said, the uh, the people in San Francisco and that that time were it was stunning what was going on. And one of the things that uh, I mean, the girls were just as sweet as could be. And you know, obviously, a young man fancy turns towards those ladies, and there seemed to be a kind of a fad at that time that was called granny dresses. And so they were just kind of like dresses that had a lot of room in them, and girls like had to. You know, a lot of things, a lot of things going on. But those dresses were just like loose and long, and it was a granny dress. And we just thought, "Hey, Grandma, you're so young." <laughs> you know, and that's kind of where the title came from. We was looking at these, and you know, ladies in their granny dresses. <laughs> so that's where the that's where the song and the idea came from. <laughs> It was inspirational. A little patchouli oil, like Granny Jess, and uh, right, and that's just a straight-ahead rocker, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just, uh, what, what more can you ask for? <laughs> so, for when when you and Jerry wrote together, um, you know, how was how was that divided up? Did one of you do the lyrics and one the music, or was it more of a collaboration where you both did a little bit of each? Um, first off, I've I've never really written with anybody else, and don't really want to. Maybe maybe one other time I did, but. Writing with Jerry was just like, from the minute Jerry and I met each other, we were best friends. And so my limited, I mean, I mean I'm a drummer, right? So it's like when you play baseball, I'm a catcher. You know, they let drummers hang out with musicians, you know, so, uh, <laughs> so I'm a drummer. And, uh, but I hear a lot of music in my head. I can really hear, and I get, I get lyrics. So Jerry and I would come in, or Jerry would come in with an idea and uh, and then I would say, well, what if it goes up to here? And, and I can play a little bit of guitar, so I would give an idea, and then he would play some great chords. And so I would, you know, I would just come in, and we'd, we'd share both on the lyrics and on where the melody would go. But I'd say, I would think the melody should go maybe up to here, and so he'd find a chord, and I'd go, no, no, that doesn't sound right. What if we, uh, you know, make that into a, you know, make it, I didn't say make it into a ninth, but I'd say make it funkier. You know, you know, so between the two of us, we would, uh, you know, discover some pretty cool, you know, some pretty cool chord progressions and write some pretty cool lyrics. But it was very collaborative. And, you know, so Jerry just was patient with me. And uh, because of that, we were able to, like, you know, be able to write some really interesting songs together. Right. Yeah. Well, Hey Grandma is, is definitely a, a classic. That was just an amazingly great rocker. Um, the next song on the album is uh, Mr. Blues, one of Bob's, of course. Um, what do you remember about Bob bringing that one in and, and how that one came together? Well, that was the one where I was just telling you about the background vocals. If you listen to Mr. Blues, it is. it sounds like maybe the Four Tops are singing it in the background. And I love, I love my drum part on that, too. Uh, but it was so much fun singing the background vocals on that. And Mosley just was, you know, this guy is like handsome as a surfer dude could be. And uh, 
plays bass like with authority and sings blues better than almost any white guy I ever met. And so Mr. Blues was uh, just right in his wheelhouse. He wrote that song, brought it in, we loved it. And like I said, if you listen to the drum part, it's got kind of a little interesting, some interesting syncopation in it. You know, so it was really, really cool. Yeah, and he, he was really like channeling Otis Redding on that song or something. It's an amazing vocal. The next song on the album is one of Peter's, uh, Fall on You, a uh, fast, energetic song. Well, if you listen to, to the album, to the kind of the version that has the bonus tracks or whatever you want to call it, yeah, you can hear Dave Rubinson, you know, egging me on to play drums. Don, would you do me one favor just for me? Play that rhythm that you play in the bridge all the way through the tune. Don't tack on, gunk on, tack on, gunk on, tack. Just, just try that. All right, you know what I mean? Just try driving from the top to the bottom, man. Just make the cuts. All right? Because it lifts right off the ground in the bridge, man, and there's a reason for it. You get into a groove and it drives like a motherfucker, and that's where it's at. Okay, stand by. There's 21. And so that was great, because uh, he just got, got it into the pocket, but it had to just drive like a train on a track that just never came off. And so, you know, he's going, you know, um, you know, so I just got that thing locked in, and uh, once it started, it just kept rocking. And so, yeah, Peter had a, a really, really nice song on there, you know, about uh, having all the responsibility and then or taking all the responsibility and then getting all the blame. <laughs> it's a pretty good song. <laughs> yeah, and lots of great vocals on that too. Lots of great backing vocals. It's kind of nonstop, you know, you, you guys are singing and playing nonstop all the way through that song. Yeah. Uh, let's talk next about uh, another song that you wrote with Don, uh, with Jerry on 805, which is just a, just a beautiful uh, love song, farewell song, I suppose. Um, Talk to me about that. What was the inspiration? Um, well, the inspiration was our was was our women that were you know back up in Washington and missing them and you know just uh, that, you know that along with some imagination. But the name of it became funny or because uh, it was like it was com coming across the San Francisco Golden Gate Bridge and we were driving across the bridge and Terry said, "What time is it?" And I said, "8:05." He goes, that's really, a, that could be a cool song. <laughs> so, he goes, so we're thinking of 805, and I guess you're leaving here soon. You know, I can't go on without you. It's useless to try. And so it just became kind of a, a real a lament for the women that weren't with us and uh, sensing that we might not even get a chance again to be with them. I don't know what's going on. And interestingly enough, just a year or so ago, the toll on the bridge at uh, San Francisco is now eight dollars and five cents. Is that right? It's a uh, beautiful uh, harmonies on that. You're, all the voices just fit together so perfectly. That, and I think that's one thing that we learned to do because, like again, like I said, because we were trying to impress each other, and I, I that never really that part never really left ever, even during difficulties. You know, when we were doing music, we were very attentive to not trying to make things our way, but trying to find the right way. Come in the morning, another one of Bob Mosley's songs. I mean, you know, what a what a vocal on that song! And again, that's that's got the same thing going on. You know, Mosley just we're doing four tops, and I love my drum part. When I look at it from my perspective, but yeah, Mosley's just like singing his singing. You know, he's just singing his ass off. It's really good. Then we're at Omaha, which is Skip. Yeah. And uh, 
Wow. I mean, can we talk about the intro? What is what is happening there? That, that humming sound and the sort of clashing, and then it just kind of steams in at full power. You know, how did you achieve that effect? Well, I think first off, I think Skip was like weaponizing music. That that song ended up over the years being like just like a musical weapon almost. And David Rubinson had the idea for the the throwing the the beginning of the sound where it goes from you know I guess they're calling quadraphonic sound at that time, where it would go from one side to the other side, from the front to the back. And then that uh, then that pounding lick would come in. So the first part of it was just David, because when we first came in, we just had the da 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 you know, but he put in that that intro, which just exploded into the uh, into the guitar line. Yeah, it sets it up so well. And again, it was just, you know, Skip's energy was like, it was just wonderful, because, you know, the lyrical content is cool, but it's simple, and there's not a lot of it, but it's all just, you know, it's magical. Yeah, absolutely. And what about the title? What, what is the true story? Because I heard a couple different versions of how, how that title came about. Um, what did you hear? Well, I, I think I heard they, they like stuck a pin in a map or something like that. <laughs> yeah, I think that that must be it. <laughs> Sounds good. So let's go with that. Is that? Do you know? Sure. I mean, was it ever explained? I have no idea. Never explained. But I always <laughs> thought that you know, I always thought Manning when he'd call alternate you know signals when he'd go Omaha, Omaha. You know, I expect to hear it. I can't believe more. Um, radio personalities don't use that as a, as an intro. I mean, it's so such a gas. Yeah, it is. Yeah, so much energy in that song. I mean, the, the drums. I mean, you you're going full steam all along, and then it keeps building into these crescendos. And yeah, it's yeah, that must have been. I I can't imagine you d- could do many takes of that. Yeah, that song basically got us kicked off of uh, of our one of our tours that we were on with the Mamas and Papas. <laughs> Did you did you know about that? You knew yeah, about that, yeah, yeah for sure. Uh, yeah, can you tell can you tell us about that? Uh, that was in June. Um, after you guys played Monterey, uh, you made the deal to uh, go on a tour with the Mamas and Papas, and you played a couple of shows. But there was a disagreement with the Buckinghams at one point, and um, you didn't play the last show. It was it was supposed to be in Pittsburgh, and instead you went to Detroit, and you had a uh, you get the Rooster Tail Club and some promo for the album. But there was the scuffle. The I, Mama Cass, I think, wasn't happy with um, your power and volume when you were playing, and so I think a couple of you got chided out by her, and uh, there was the scuffle with the Buckinghams. So that was all the fault of Omaha. <laughs> because really? First off, well, it wasn't the Bucking the Buckinghams. Would, you know, there, there's a car, song by Johnny Guitar Watson um, that uh, they used to do. Right, mercy, mercy, mercy. Yeah, so we really kind of, particularly Jerry and I, revered Johnny Guitar Watson, and the Buckinghams version of it just made us kind of like, you know, we weren't the nicest people always. <laughs> it just made us ill. So we give them a good shot of our rear ends from the from the proscenium of the stage and uh during that song so we we gave a nice big moon and it ended up in a bit of a kerfuffle with them and then the mamas and papas had to follow us and uh because they were the headline and we were the next one and when we did omaha at the if you can imagine we're doing omaha and it's going you know and then you know bam and then they come out and go Monday, Monday, and they did not like that. And she didn't, she didn't care for us at all. And so they actually asked us to, you know, they told Columbia they wanted us off the tour. But we went to Detroit and played at the, you know, at Gail Sayers Rooster Club there, and that was that was great. Skippy got so excited he jumped off the stage accidentally, I guess. You know, he was like he was doing one of his jump up in the air and running around and. Man, he just flew off the stage, you know, because he was so enthusiastic, you know. But we had a great reception at the Rooster Club, and we didn't have to deal with uh, with anybody playing Mercy, Mercy. <laughs> yeah. Like, 
you know, like if Pat Boone was singing lead. <laughs> I could see that, how that would be torture night after night to hear that, yeah. So the next song on the album is Naked If I Want. It's uh, less than a minute long. Yeah, we, that was the shortest song ever recorded on a popular album at the time. <laughs> and it's just, uh, you know, it's just a song about, you know, it was just so miraculous that we were like doing this and we didn't know if this could possibly last or if it did or didn't it didn't really matter we just wanted an amp and we wanted to play and we wanted to be you know we wanted to be in harmony and have a good time and you know if we need something could we borrow it and it's just kind of a good old boy song you know it's just about you know, in the midst of all of this, you gotta stay humble. You gotta realize that you're not you're no big deal. You're just in a situation where a lot of other people could have been. So naked if I want to is just kind of an anthem for you know, for uh just the, our blue collar selves. Right. And and it, and you guess it just was a minute because it didn't need to be anymore. There was nothing else that needed to be said in the song. Yeah. Of course we second time we did it we made it longer. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. You redid it, yeah, on Wow, yeah. Yeah. We're flipping the album over now, and uh, the first uh, song is Someday, which is a collaboration between you, Don, and, and Jerry, and Skip. So um, maybe you could tell me a little bit about that one, and, and you know, who's who's singing it? I mean, when Bob comes in at the end, that's obviously Bob, and which is a... You know, the, the hairs on, on the back of your neck always come up when that part comes in. But, you know, who's singing the different parts up to then? Yeah, when Bob comes in, it's like Mario Alonzo. Um, <laughs> but the thing that was kind of interesting with this was, this was a collaboration. I mean, Jerry and I wrote the song, and Skip added, helped to add on the bridge. So we just all got into the makings of the song. Uh, but... Skip and I sang it together. And I've done songs where I go in and redo or overdub on my vocal just to be able to make it a little, you know, not, not because of it needed, but because I just like the sound of having two voices on there. Yeah. So Skip and I sang that together in unison. And we practiced in the hall at the studio in the stairwell. And it sounded so good. But, you know, Skip would say, you know, hey, let's just do this so it sounds like one voice. So I'd say, yeah, let's do that. So we, I'd say, let's just go ahead and breathe at the same time and inhale at the same time and look at each other and not miss. So if you listen to it, you can't, it sounds like one voice. Yeah. So Skip and I are singing that together. And then Bob comes in, like I said, it sounds like, you know, like, uh, I don't know, Roy Orbison. So it's a very unusual song. And it, funny, um, years, years later, we didn't know, how, we couldn't play it anymore. Jerry couldn't figure out the chords. You know, Jerry had a great deal of difficulty figuring out the chord structure to that because it's so unique. Another one of yours and Jerry's is uh, Ain't No Use, which, I, you know, definitely strong country flavor on that one. Yeah. Um, I guess that's just us releasing our cowboy, you know, because we both, we both, Jerry and I are big fans of Sons of the Pioneers, and we both really like bluegrass, and we both like Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee. That's the kind of folk music that we used to do together all the time. And so Ain't No Use is just a release of that, kind of like, just fun as heck to play, fun to write. It's really, really a uplifting song. And then another beautiful song by Peter, which is uh, Sitting by the Window. Uh, Pete, yeah, Pete, I have such strong respect for each of these guys in our band, and still to this day, you know, they all wrote such really great songs. Peter, in a way, is almost my favorite songwriter. Um, he's very, you know, plaintive and philosophical and manages to put some some thoughts together that um, are really, really profound, you know. 
but just the same. I'm playing my game, and I guess you're playing it too. Go ahead and play it on through. But what I loved about that was the beautiful way he sang it. Yeah. You know, it just, it was a lament. And so his voice was really, really cool. And, you know, in, in the part where it lifts up, the voices lift up behind him. And, and then there's some very kind of like real intricate guitar playing. Um, that three guitars, if you listen to it carefully, the guitar playing on that is, that's a perfect example of how three guitars could fit together and, you know, by listening to each other. And it's just really, uh, it's, a re it's a really a nice song. I always love that song. Yeah, it's amazing that there's three guitars, yet there's still so much space in that song. I mean, that's, it seems, it's, that's, that's an incredible feat. Because um, the, the atmosphere is beautiful, and the guitar tones, and, and you know, Mosley's bass line is just, you know, great. Well, that's an interesting observation, Mike, because a lot of people wouldn't notice the sound that isn't there. And I think you're right. There's a lot of, space there for having so many voices and so many guitars you know yeah you gotta have the space so that's where the magic happens and uh you know you, a wall of sound is, is is nothing you know without space so changes Another one by you and Jerry. Right. And another fast, fast-moving song. I, uh, I really love that song, particularly because, you know, I sing and play drums on that. And so uh, it, was always, it was always great to be able to sing that and play it because somehow my playing made me want to sing it more and singing wanted to play it more. But there's a center part in it where um, it's very powerful and, and it builds to a crescendo and then it's just drums. And if you listen, when I loved, I loved it when I heard the uh, live version from the, the Avalon, I believe. Um, and just when the drums come in, it's just like, every, just the whole crowd just goes Rawr! You know, because it's just like this powerful instrumental. And then it's just like, you know, my, my Gene Cooper drumming, you know, managed to like, uh, just fill in this space and then it just comes right back into the vocal with, uh, you know, with the same kind of power that uh, it left. So it was uh, just, you know, it was just a powerful, great song. Yeah, absolutely. And what, what is the effect on the guitar solo? Is it a real, uh, is it like a, through a Leslie or something like that? Or is it just like a tremolo? It, it's a different sound. Yeah, Jerry got that sound just with, just with, his, uh, with his hands. You know, he never had any of the any of the extra curricular, you know, components to wah-wah pedals or whatever it was in those days and whatever they are now. But he would just play with the volume and squeeze his guitar and bend it, and you know, he would end up with some amazing sounds. Yeah, wow, that's that's amazing. Um, Lazy Me is really it's kind of like the dark horse song of the album for me. It, it, it took a few years to kind of creep up on me, and now it's like one of my favorites. Um, you know, that I'll just lay here and decay here. There's some real deep stuff going on there with Bob. What are your thoughts on Lazy Me? Yeah, it's, it's too deep for me. I love the song. I just, uh, <laughs> you know, I've, I'm kind of like, I'm same way with you. I, I think it's the dark horse of the album. Um, and and you, when you listen to it, it's, it's like almost like that, you know, like my wife finally got me to watch the My Octopus Teacher. I think Lazy Me is the octopus teacher of our album. <laughs> That's one way of looking at it, yeah. Did you ever see that video? Did you ever see that documentary? No, I have not. I've heard of it. Oh, man, it's like, it's just not a, it, it, it's a compliment. Because this thing turns in such a way, it shows us how loving and powerful it is. But then it, it comes in so many different shapes and forms, and it's scary, then it's beautiful, and so it's kind of the same way with Lazy Me. It's like, it's all of those things, you know? It's Mosley, man. Yeah. What a, what a <laughs> yeah. dude. Indeed. And then uh, the last song on the album is uh, one of Skip's, Indifference. Another fast one. Um, 
with a lot of great guitar from Jerry. So, yeah, tell me about that one. Well, I think Jerry and I, we changed that from what used to be called a slot, and that's a, that's a rhythm. You know, so it kind of started out being, you know, what a different a day is me. So, but Jerry and I are out of the Northwest, and we're real shuffle guys. We love shuffles. And so Jerry just said, hey, why don't we try this like a shuffle? And then suddenly kind of went into, you know, the... So it went into a shuffle beat. And uh, it is kind of, to me, it's like the most uncommercial song, but it's so interesting. And then, you know, then Skip, like, put the slop back in it when Mosley sings. So it goes, it changes from a shuffle into um, a straight-ahead rock and then back into a shuffle. Um, and there's some intricate guitar parts in there. You know, but, and, and Skip, that's the one where Skip, I recall when Skippy, like, gets real excited and jumps up and just, like, goes, uh, you know, just has this great showmanship, you know. And, and so it used to be, like, uh, that song seemed to, like, really uh, activate everybody in the band. You know, like I said, I don't think it's very commercial, but I think it's a wonderful song. Um, and so that was, it was, a, it was a bit of a different uh, genesis to that song. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot of excitement packed into it. And then I love that that coda is kind of like that raga kind of a part. I mean, I wish that went on for like twice, ten times as long. Yeah, it's, uh, it has got an interesting structure, unusual, really different. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a perfect way to end the album, I, but I just wish that, that coda kind of went on more, longer. I always just wanted that to continue. Yeah, the... the uh, the answering back and forth between Bob and Skip, you know, in that, in the middle section is really, I mean, it's just, it's like I'm going, wow, that is just really fantastic. And so a lot of that was, you know, we had the structure and harmonies and everything down by doing it acoustically, but that really came together when we had mics and we're able to put it together live. That one we didn't. Almost every other song on there was like put together before we got uh, before we were amplified. That song came together after we were amplified. Yeah, I can understand that. And you, and you guys are just totally vibing off each other's playing, and and yeah, the the electricity and the volume and everything is kind of you know amplifying everything. So okay, that's the album and release date June sixth, nineteen sixty seven. Let's we got to talk about the cover photo, Don, because. Uh, you're kind of uh, legendary for your finger on the on the first pressing. Was that just kind of a spontaneous gesture that that you did that and that somehow got picked? I mean, how did that happen? Well, I hate to say this because it just shows what a moron I am. But uh, <laughs> for some reason, I didn't connect with Jim Marshall, and uh, he was taking us out to do the album covers. And I don't think there was a shot that he took that I didn't give the finger in. <laughs> And at what point did everybody notice? I mean, you must have noticed right away, right? When you saw the like a mock-up or, or whatever. And Well, you know. I think at that point, who was it? Who was the vice president? Um, Rockefeller? No, it wasn't Rockefeller. Gold? I don't know who the hell it was, but I know that the vice president of the United States gave the finger to some college crowd. And so I guess when they saw that, when Columbia saw that, I goes, well, if the vice president can get away with it, you know, it was pretty controversial at the time. So I think when they saw that, uh, and they liked the they liked the composition of the picture it was up at an antique store. And actually, Cam knows more about the story behind that as the location and everything than I do. But because we were just going all over the place, but uh, they liked the composition and yeah. the finger sticking out there. Columbia thought this, you know, we could cause a little. This could cause a little bit of an uproar, which would be good. You know, all all, uh, you know. Publicity is probably good for this band. So, no, no, was it, that was where were we? Do you know Fairfax? You, up in Fairfax? Yeah. So they were. Uh, this they were going all over Marin County, and uh, the shot was at Fairfax, a little town, a little bit to the north. And there's in front of a shop called the Junk Teak Shop. The building isn't there anymore, unfortunately. Of course, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the hype. You know, the, the five singles released at the same time, and, and that, you know, was perceived as somehow a commercial move. You guys were not somehow authentic because of this. 
and there was a, a backlash. I mean, how much of that is true and how much of that is sort of, uh, you know, myth that's been created over the years? Well, one of the reasons we went with Columbia is one of the things Dave Rubinson said to us. He said, you know what, man? Five months from now, you're not going to be able to walk down the street in your hometown. He said, we're going to make you guys the American Beatles. That's what's going to happen here. So I can see it in my mind that back in some back room with maybe some cigar smoking guys and, and they're doing the strategy meeting for the launch of Moby Grape, the guy goes, I got a great idea. What do you think of this? Here's what we're going to do. Look, we're going to take this album. There's not a bad cut on this album. What are we going to do? We're going to take one of these songs. I can't tell you how much I love this album. There's so many good songs. Why don't we get this? Get this now. We'll take five songs, five out, no, five separate singles. How's this? We'll do five separate singles. We'll release them all at the same time. It'll be the greatest campaign in the history of music. Five singles, five singles all at the same time from the greatest band that America's ever produced. What do you think? Hey, you know, we love it. We love it. Let's <laughs> do it. That's what happened. Right. And what happened is then DJs didn't know what song to play. Um, people thought we were the monkeys, you know, that not to say to be, because uh, I love the monkeys. And I'm not just saying that to be politically correct. I thought I loved their TV show. It was funny. Anyway, so they thought we were the monkeys. They thought we were a hype. You know, it just uh, created um, bad, uh, it just created just a bad feeling among the industry people. You know, I mean, musicians and other people thought, you know, these guys are playing some great music. But just the way that that thing was launched was finished it before it began. And we still sold, I don't know, 500,000 copies or... You got up to 24 in Billboard. It was on the it was on Billboard for six months. Yeah. Right. So, whereas, you know, we sold, we still, it was very profitable, still sold a whole lot of out, but it never became... You know, it was never, uh, you know, it never became a number one hit or, you know, it never got the airplay on, on the on the AM radio or FM that uh, that it might have had if if maybe Omaha was released as a single or 805 was released as a single. Or, so it became a, it became a, a, just a cluster F. Yeah, right. Yeah, you should have had that hit single. But you would, you know, you became known known as an album band, which is nothing wrong with that, of course. But maybe a hit single would have taken you to the, you know, to the next level, like, you know, the airplane had somebody to love and White Rabbit, you know, and you could have had that with one of your songs. I think so. But, you know, I'm not, it's not regret. It's just that's what happened. Right. Yeah. So, you know, let's just jump right ahead to what's going on now, because Don, you're still making music and, um, you know, we, we we won't get into the whole rest of the Moby Grape story, or we're going to be have a three hour episode here. So, you know, Don, talk about what you're doing today. I mean, how how is your music today compared with what you were doing with the Grape? I mean, it's basically, from what I can hear, is is a logical progression from there. You're really working in the same area that you always have. Um, it's funny that uh, I'm a late bloomer. I think I, I did my first solo album when I was I don't know sixty nine. And I uh, did my second one when I was like, yeah, my second one when I was 78 or 79. And now my third one is coming out. And I have like a, a deep well of songs. And, and you know, Cam said that. And I think it's kind of interesting. Is I, didn't, I wasn't really active musically in public or recording for all of my, those formative years after Moby Great. But now in the last decade, uh, or so I've become just completely immersed back into music again. And I've met some wonderful, wonderful players. My the album before this one that was coming out was, I had Mellencamp guys on it and a lot of Moby Grape guys and Bruton Cummings came and sang with me and some great players out of Tennessee. And before that, I did an album with Gordon Stevens, who was on 20 Granite Creek with the Grape. And Jerry came down and spent a week with me in the studio and, and then this new one, I've got, somehow I ended up with these producers in Jerusalem who uh, are producing the album and doing the mixing and the mastering and cooperating. And uh, I've had uh, just this great experience. And so I've got 20 songs in the can and I've got two more albums in my head that I want to do. And so it's just been 
um, a real blessing to be able to be at this place in my life and just be see, feel filled with music. That's great that you're still doing it. So the new album is going to be coming out soon. It's called Limited Engagement. That's right. Um, why is it, do you think, that that first Moby Grape album is still the one everyone talks about? It's, it's you know, considered one of the greatest of, of the era. Why do you think that is? Well, I think there's, just, there's no fillers. I mean, every song stands on its own. And what we spoke about earlier, I think, is um, part of it also. I mean, if you look at if you look at each individual and what what talent they brought to this, and if you have you know three guitars, um, you know five players, five singers, five songwriters, and each of them with probably what you'd call some some sort of expertise in in what they brought to bear, you know where they come in to see each other and everybody's like got some real specific gifts. I think that first album is just done um, with, uh, you know, it, it, was, it was just like, it's honest. It's real, it's honest. It was done, just walk in, lay down the tracks, sing the song straight ahead. Not a, not a filler song on the album. I think that's kind of why it has that reputation because it has merit. Absolutely. Cam, would you pretty much agree with those sentiments? What are your thoughts about that album? Yeah, I can't, I can't put it better than Don. This is, uh, I describe it as alchemy in the Moby Great book, where they had a kind of alchemy that was very, it was extremely unique. All these things that Don has been describing uh, from five different people who all had different backgrounds, and they brought these different things to the table, and they mixed them, you know, it was magical. And uh, that's why the, the album stands up. It's, it's, it can stand up next to the best albums ever made. Absolutely. Well, thanks, guys, for your time today. I really appreciate it. Um, been a lot of fun learning more about all this. One of my favorite records of all time. Um, and now you've given me some new angles to look at it and listen to it. Well, thank you, Mike. I appreciate, uh, I appreciate you having us on your podcast. I love your magazine, by the way. Oh, thank you, Don. Thanks. I appreciate that. The Ugly Things Podcast was produced by James Archer and narrated by Mike Stacks. That's me. I've been publishing Ugly Things magazine now for 40 years, covering the best overlooked music of the 1960s and beyond. Don Stevenson's new album, Limited Engagement, is due for release soon. Cam Cobb's book about Skip Spence, Weighted Down, will be published by Omnibus Press in early 2024. You can order the latest issue of the magazine at uglythings.com. That's ugly hyphen things.com where you can also order back issues vinyl cds and books and read additional articles and reviews please subscribe to the podcast leave a review and tell your friends we would also really appreciate it if you became a patreon supporter for a small monthly donation patreon members get exclusive access to all kinds of interesting bonus content your contribution will help us keep bringing you the very best in 1960s beat garage and psychedelic music. I'd like to send out a personal thank you to our top Patreon supporters, Michael Barbara, Chip Lyon, Rob Brannigan, Stephen Schmidt, J. Paul Riga, and Leon Jones. Thank you, all of you, for your support. And thank you for listening. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. 
and why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 